Welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm your host, Joel Marshall, and I'm up in Seattle, and I'm lucky enough to be sitting here with Stuart Stern. Um, we'll talk about who Stuart Stern is. You may know who he is, and you may not, but you will by the end of this. Um, you certainly know his work. Um, Stuart, thank you so much for inviting me into your home. Pleasure. Uh, it's a beautiful home you have here in Seattle. Um, and thank you. I met Stuart a couple of days ago. We were in a coffee shop and we started talking. And uh, I just find him a very fascinating person. Um, Stuart, you're, did you start out to be a screenwriter or how did you begin? No, I, I started out wanting to be a painter. And I went to a, a wonderful school in New York, very progressive private school, where they had some of the best painters of the 30s, artists of the 30s as faculty. So I had a good beginning in, in uh, painting there and also in English. We had the head of the new school's English department was also the head of our English department. And that was on college level and we were on high school level so we were way ahead of ourselves by the time we got through that. And it was a school that had some amazing achievers in my class, for instance, from first grade, right straight through high school, was Diane Arbus, the great photographer. <clears throat> but she wasn't a photographer then, she was my next neighbor in the, in the <laughs> art room. Uh -huh. And uh, but it was so interesting to see how, how she developed, both as a painter, as an artist, and she was always against the tide. She was a, an original, and the rest of us were stumbling along doing what all the books said we should do at that age. Uh -huh. She was way ahead of us. And her brother, Howard, became Poet Laureate of the United States. Oh my goodness. So it's a good... That's quite a group. Yeah. Um, so you were in New York, and did you? How long did you stay in New York? I was born there mm -hmm. and lived there until I was eighteen and went off to college. Mm -hmm. And I went to the University of Iowa because they had a superb art department, and Grant Wood was head of the art department there. But he was on sabbatical with it, which I didn't know till I got there. Mm -hmm. And I studied with a great German lithographer named Emil Gonzo. And I was supposed to have gone with him and with his wife that summer to Woodstock, New York, where he had a summer place. And I was going to be his apprentice and learn this ancient art thoroughly, which he had he taught there. We had an ancient, ancient lithograph press. And in fact, he died carrying one of those heavy stones to the sink in the art room at Iowa. Had a heart attack. Oh my God. And uh, so that never came to be. What exactly is lithography? Well, lithography is a process where you grind the surface of a certain kind of very heavy stone and you grind it with uh, uh, a kind of sand called carborundum. 
and there was a there's another stone that that has a handle and you swing this stone over the surface of the stone and depending on the uh grit of the carb carborundum you can get either a very fine grain surface to the stone you're going to draw on or a much coarser one a more textured one and then with you coat, coat the stone, and I can't remember with what, gum arabic, I think it's called. And when that dries, you draw on the stone in reverse of what you want it to be. <laughs> with a lithograph pencil, it's a kind of crayon, waxy thing. And it, wherever the black is, that's the part that will ultimately print and after that, you etch it. You put a, an etching substance over the whole thing and it eats around the blackest parts so that it gets lighter and lighter until finally the, light, the lightest parts are just the paper itself. And it has a wonderful luminous quality and you can also use color. And this is the most old-fashioned way by putting pinholes in the stone, you can line up sheet of paper after sheet of paper, so uh, or rather stone after stone on the on the sheet of paper you're printing on. So you might have one stone which only will cover certain dark areas of the drawing and print that in green. And then you put that paper back, and you have to print it wet. You put it back into the press and put a second stone on it. And that's what you line up with the pinhole so that the image of what you've already printed stays clear of everything that you hadn't printed. And you can do up to, I think, ten separate stones. It takes an unconscionable length of time. And each time you have a stone in it, you, you're like a captain at sea at the steering, at the, at the wheel. And you have to operate this thing, and it goes through as reluctantly as if you're pulling someone apart on the rack. Oh, my God. It's like a medieval torture Sounds machine. Sounds rigorous. But the, the effect is just afterwards, I'll show you one that my teacher did. And then at the end of my freshman year, uh, when he died, I just couldn't draw anymore. I just stopped. And I had always wanted to be an actor. And when I went back to visit my folks that summer in New York, there was an ad in the paper saying that they were uh, auditioning candidates for a very, very good summer theater school at East, Tom East Hampton, Long Island. And uh, called the the Leighton Rollins Studio School of the Theater, and everybody on his board was someone important in the theater in New York. It was a great school, so I won this scholarship and went there, and just changed my life. So when I went back to Iowa, I went uh, as a drama major in acting and scene design and graduated that way mm -hmm. and uh and i had a i always liked to write and i had the, a writing teacher in the last three months i was there 
named Marion Galloway from Georgia, and just a great, great teacher. She had taught Tennessee Williams when he was at the University of Iowa. Wow. And so I had three months of very good Does the University of Iowa have a long tradition of um, writing courses or being a strong school for writing? Not uh, really the, the... the writer's school at the University of Iowa, or whatever they call it, it's not called a school. The program began while I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Eric Knight, who wrote The Flying Yorkshireman, mm-hmm. and one or two other very important writers organized it initially. And But I'm, I was never part of that because I was a the BA candidate and that began so late in my career there which was all of three years because we were speeded up in order to activate our ROTC uh, training so when I left I was in uniform and on my way to OCS infantry OCS which I flunked out of (laughs) and was uh demoted to private. So I I went through the war as a combat infantry squad leader in... in uh, God, I understand you were at the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. My Lord. Did that... What did that do to you? I mean, did that just change your viewpoint completely? It, or yeah. What was that well, like? between Iowa going to the Middle West where I had never really been, I'd always been raised as a kind of privileged New York kid. And... Uh, because I came from a a movie family. My dad didn't. He was a doctor. Mm-hmm. But he married into uh, the family of the eventual founder of Paramount Pictures, Adolf Zucker. And I knew that... And he was your uncle? Yeah. Right? Uh, it just felt that I, I wanted to be where I would never ordinary be, mm-hmm. ordinarily be. And I loved the country. I loved farms. And Iowa seemed just a great place to go. And it it was. And at Iowa, I learned to meet people who were totally different from myself, came from different backgrounds. And and the same was true of the infantry, which I at first tried to get out of because it was so offensive to me. It was everything Mm -hmm. I hated. But... Once I got to know those guys and realized that they were people I never, never would have met. And that was a huge uh, resource for me. It wasn't intended that way, but I think everything I've done as a writer has referred in some way to the war. Even, you know, it was either the insight that I got about relationships which were so close you know in, when you've got a buddy out there and you're fighting for each other's lives or um, as material because the war I've written about the war an awful lot and uh, so it was just a, one of those gifts that came mm-hmm. that war for me mm-hmm. it wasn't fun to be in Sometimes things are not fun to be in, but you get some, uh, it enriches your life in some way. Yeah. It broadens your point of view. 
Um, so when you came back from the war, did you go back to New York, or what did you do? Went back to New York and, and became an actor in New York, and auditioned for all the people I'd always admired from the audience. And uh, finally got, well, I was supposed to do um, The Frog Footman in Alice in Wonderland for Eva Legallion, who was <clears throat> my hero, great, great, great English actress, and uh, who lived in Connecticut. And she started a company when I was a little boy called the Civic Repertory Theater that had, by the time they were finished, 38 classic plays, all built, rehearsed, costumed, and she could do just with a snap of her fingers. If someone was sick who was in Peter Pan, then she'd switch to Alice in Wonderland, you know, two hours before the performance. Oh my gosh. And they were all big productions. I don't know how in the world she did it. But she was my first Peter Pan, and my mom would take me back. She always did Peter Pan Saturday morning at 11.30. Something I find interesting about Peter Pan, it's almost always played by a woman. Yeah, not now, not yeah. anymore. Not well, I guess since... in traditionally, yeah. it has always. I was watching a very um, old film, a uh, silent movie, Peter Pan, and, and it was play, Peter Pan was played by a woman. Betty Bronson. Is that who that is? Yeah. And it was a great little film. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I was surprised because I thought that was some kind of uh, I didn't know that that was a traditional thing to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is, but it's usually it's very effective. I think it began it began in England, and uh, there were certain laws about children being on the stage, mm -hmm. and they they had to be on for lim limited periods of time, and that's mm -hmm. such a long role. And also, it takes much more wisdom than a child has. Although I thought Jeremy Sumter was. Fantastic as Peter Pan. So, were you in Peter Pan? No, no. Uh -oh. uh, I never, never got to be <laughs> in it. But I got to fly here because I have a very good Peter Pan collection. Uh -huh. So when they do Peter Pan here, the the kid who plays Peter now always a boy, uh -huh. and the director come up here, and I go through my collection with them, and we talk about productions and all those things. And in return for that, <clears throat> at the Intamon, they they got my measurements and had me fitted up for a flying harness. So when they rehearsed Peter mm -hmm. for the first time on all his flies, mm -hmm. they hooked me up and I flew them all at the Intamon, which was really... Wow, the Intamon is a famous theater here in Seattle. Uh, do they do Peter Pan every year? No, they did three years in a, in a row, mm. but this director hasn't done it yet. So, at that, when did you decide to become a writer? Was it a decision? or? It was after the war. Mm -hmm. um, I was so full of, of what had happened and in such deep mourning for the friends I'd lost that I just was fixated. I couldn't write enough about the war. And I was writing short stories and never thinking about film. And then I wrote a play about it that uh, a very famous writer about the theater, John Gassner, who did many of the 10 best uh, plays, uh, saw it, saw a rehearsed reading of it and uh, 
and he called me in and he said that he felt that I could be a writer. He was Columbia's East Coast representative uh, in the talent, the writing talent department. So his eyes were always out to find people. And so he encouraged me to take on certain tasks in New York that to help me develop my writing. And then I went, moved to California, but uh, not as a writer. I was still studying acting out there and also got my first job as a dialogue director where you sit holding the script and teach the actors their lines. Oh. And you get there when they do in the morning and go through makeup with them and everything and test them on their lines. And during that time, uh, you know, you'd come across a patch of dialogue that was unsayable. The mm-hmm. actor couldn't get their mouths around it. Mm-hmm. So then I'd rewrite. And that was really the first time that I... Do they still have dialogue directors in films? I don't think so. I've never run across a dialogue director. I've seen the script supervisor who makes sure that everybody says the right lines, but not a dialogue director. Interesting. And also, um, sometimes people will help you with certain accents and be a voice coach that way. That's an interesting way to... It's sort of an interesting way to apprentice... It was great. And it was at Eagle Lion Studios. Mm -hmm. So I I worked on all those film noir things that Tony... uh, Oh, God, what was his name? The great director of T-Men and practically everything else they did. Tony Mann Mm -hmm. and his famous um, cameraman, John Alton who could shoot the whole movie with a flashlight bulb. <laughs> it was just incredible. Really? So you got a chance to watch directors at work, um, deal with the dialogue, coach actors. Yeah. And then when did you turn to um, screenwriting? I turned to screenwriting when I saw a movie called The Search that Fred Zinnemann had directed mm-hmm. in Europe with uh, Montgomery Clift about the orphans of the concentration camps. And it was the first time an American director, even though he was born in Vienna, went and took a company to war-torn Europe, well, to Europe at all, to really shoot not just backgrounds, but to shoot there, Mm -hmm. the whole movie. I see. And also got the story principally from the people who had actually lived that experience. And... It moved me more than any movie I'd ever seen. I don't know why. I saw it privately before it was released. And I just wanted so badly to meet him. And I had a young cousin working at MGM. And he said, well, uh, let me... He said, I met him over lunch one day. And let me see if I can ask him whether he'd meet you. So he asked him, but Zinnemann said, no, I don't want to meet anybody who gives me a compliment because I don't know what to do when I'm complimented. So my cousin stole some of my uh, short stories out of my desk and gave them to Zinnemann, and Zinnemann read them, and he asked me if I wanted to write his next movie. So that's how... My uh, Lord, right like that? Yeah, there was no... uh, I never had the experience of having to you know, bang on doors to get an agent or any mm-hmm. of that. So what was the movie that you wrote for him? It was called Teresa. Mm-hmm. And it was the uh, story of a young 
soldier who was very mother dominated and who really went into the army in the hope that he could become a man. It was kind of a theme that went through a lot of my work. And then um, we cast it with two unknowns. Fred was cutting The Men, the movie that Brando did for him. So he sent me to Europe to find locations and to find any American ex-servicemen who could be our soldiers over there and who had had the experience of war and also to find a leading lady. So as an actor who had, you know, gone through that process, uh, I knew how to do it, how to find them. Mm-hmm. And I had ads in all the papers in Italy, and I went from town to town doing research on the war and photographing things, uh, locations that I thought Fred would be interested in seeing, and having an ad in all those papers saying that I was coming as a an agent of MGM looking for a leading lady. Hmm. So at every hotel, there were crowds of girls and their grandmas and then crying. They were all so poor after the war. And, uh, but I didn't, I interviewed, I think, 200 girls on that trip. And it wasn't until I came back to Rome, to the office, MGM office in Rome, that I thought of calling some of the drama schools. And I did that. And there was the head of one of the schools had a girl as a student who had just finished a movie with that De Sica had produced, hadn't directed. And uh, he arranged for her to come in. And, and that was Anna Maria Pierangeli, who turned out to be Pier Angeli, who mm-hmm. turned out to be Jimmy Dean's big love, who ultimately, unfortunately, turned out to be dead also as a very, very early age. Hmm. But... Um, so I tested her over there and came back with the test in my the knee pocket of my jumpsuit. <laughs> and uh, Arthur Lowe and Zinnemann just were smitten, so we got an English teacher for her who was forbidden from using the script at all and teaching her English because we didn't want her fed line readings. But she was just a delight. And we found a, a practically unknown boy who had done, uh, he was in Stalag 17 on stage, but that was the only major thing he had done. And he, um, John Erickson, so he played her. So it seems like you were much more involved as as a writer, you were much more involved in the process of the f- making of the film than, than most writers are today. Yes. Um, were, is that true about all the films that you've done, or a lot of the films? I was there? invited. There was not one film that I wrote that I wasn't invited to be on the set from the mm-hmm. beginning straight through Final Cut and through the casting, through everything. And... Uh, a and lot I of writers it, today say that they can't, they can't even they come can't, to the set. They yeah. try to arbitrate it. And, but even then, I was, I think, the only one who, really? who did that. So did you, uh, would you help the director and the actors? Yeah. During the... Sometimes I, I would help with the casting. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
working with Zinnemann, for instance, he felt that because I was nearer the age of Pierre Angeli and John Erickson than he was, that I should work with them first. So every night I would take them up to my hotel room and we would investigate the scenes. We'd explore them, improvise them, and, uh, and establish the relationships, get them to be... She had never kissed anyone. And one night I had to organize this kiss <laughs> between John Erickson and, and Pierre Angeli so that she and her mother sitting fixed in the doorway. <laughs> it was just awful. But um, and I would go over their lines with them as I had with the actors, but and some of the uh, directors asked me to, to work on interpretation. They were really only interested in staging it. Mm -hmm. after the actors came in. But I was always there through rehearsal, and if I saw patches that were clumsy, or if it didn't seem right for the actor, then I could correct it right away, mm. or over the next few days. The only one I didn't take advantage of was Rebel Without a Cause, because uh, that was such a, a personal... It was the story off screen was as intense as the one on screen between the director and his cast. Was it a uh, was it a, a difficult shoot? How it do you wasn't mean? It was a particularly difficult shoot, oh. but but it was James Dean working with having worked with Kazan, whom mm -hmm. he idolized and whom he loved as the director of East of Eden. Mm -hmm to be taken on by Nick Ray, who was an admirer of Kazan too, mm -hmm. idolized him. But Jimmy ran away, in fact, when we were, I was finishing up the script and they were getting ready to, sh to start rehearsals. He had cast most of the film and Jimmy disappeared and wouldn't come back, he wouldn't be found. And they were going to put him on suspension and began talking about other actors to test for that part because he just got scared of after East of Eden, which by then was being seen in town. It wasn't out yet. But um, he suddenly got cold feet about working with anybody less than Kazan, Kazan had been. And he called me one night from New York and uh, confessed all that and wanted me to tell him to come back. He said, I'll only do the movie if you want me to do it. And I said, Jimmy, you can't put that on me because I would lie if I said, don't come back because this means a lot to my career. But you have to make that choice. And so he came back, but I knew that um, if I were on the set, if I had asked Nick, I don't know if he would have allowed it. I think he would have. But uh, did you? Were you ever involved with that um, school of acting, Lee Strasberg and Elia Kazan? And, and I was a member. Uh, I auditioned. I mean, I audited the actor studio in New York. Mm -hmm. I would go Tuesdays and Fridays and just sit in the back and see what they did and then when they established a playwright's branch 
when they had the actor studio west because so many of them came mm -hmm. to California and wanted to continue. And Strasbourg would come occasionally. Uh, but people like, um, oh, I'm trying to think. Mark Rydell, who had been in the actor's studio, would, would take over, or Shelley Winters if she was in town. Some of the sort of main mainstays of mm -hmm. the original actor's studio would come in and sit in the seat where Strasbourg was nor normally and moderate sessions. And they had a playwright session with which uh, William Inge, the playwright, he was the official moderator of that, but he asked me whether I would come in and alternate with him because he had to leave town very often. So I had the experience of organizing rehearsed readings of the membership. What was their process like? Because, I mean, as far as actors of this time period, we look back at a lot of these actors like James Dean and Marlon Brando and we say, well... You know, they just did this amazing work. And a lot of times, I think, as actors, we're aspiring to do that kind of work that just seems so uh, in the moment and um, also spontaneous. Yeah. What, what was different about that time period? What was, what was it about? Was it, were these actors just really special people, or was it partly the process? Or? It was a combination. It was the, the process was the main thing. And the group theater, which had been in existence from 1930 to 1940, roughly, had been organized by Harold Clearman, mm -hmm. who had uh, studied at the Moscow Art. He had gone there. He knew Stanislavski, uh, Stella Adler, who eventually became Clearman's wife. She was a founder or early member of the group theater, and she became one of the most important teachers. She, she disagreed with the way Strasbourg was working. He was also a member of the group theater because he insisted that the Stanislavski system was the Strasbourg method, and he used literally a lot of stuff that Stanislavski had used originally but then set aside because it was so... Uh, it was so deep psychologically that sometimes it was dangerous to move an actor that deeply into themselves and into their memories so that they would be able to find uh, similar circumstances in their own lives that could apply to moments in a play. And they would they were taught to remember that kinesthetically by remembering all the circumstances in which something happened that made you cry. You never, you never tried to cry. You never tried to reproduce that result. But by remembering who was in the room, what the room was, what was on the dish in front of you, what the weather was like, what the smells were, what the sounds were, what what the conversation was that eventually you would if if you were doing that deeply and sincerely enough it would come back 
And if you could repeat that three or four times successively, not on the same day, but in, in a rehearsal of the play you were in, bring that onto the stage, uh, then you knew that you could think of it quickly and that response would be there so that what you did was authentic. And they were... Uh, that was the main thing, to ingest the text so that you knew consciously what the actors, what the characters need was at every single minute and the scene was broken into very careful beats and you learned how to make an adjustment if the actor you were opposite went in a different direction. And the idea was to be that character so deeply that you could live any moment of life as that character. Yes, without shutting down the actual what's happening right now, you that's can right. still... Yeah. I think that's probably where people sometimes get lost with it, is they get so introspective that they don't experience the, what's happening right now. Exactly, and they're not awake mm -hmm. to the person who's with them. An actor who is using the system properly, or any other system that works. Mm -hmm. if, if, if a hair of yours drops on your collar... Mm -hmm. And it serves me in that role mm -hmm. to, in the middle of a speech, to, to try to take it off or to, to do something and then to mm -hmm. do whatever I had to do with you to make it okay that I broke through that boundary. Yeah. Then, and that gave it a kind of life on the stage that, was, that nobody that, had seen. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it obviously at the time it really woke people up and it still does today. Yeah, and I also think that uh, late Meisner then took that whole like in the moment thing and um, took it even to you know the nth but, degree. But he was at the at the uh, in the he was in the same group theater also. What an incredible all time that must have been! And Bobby Lewis, Robert mm -hmm. Lewis, they were all in living together for those ten years of the group theater. So in your writing say, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, when you were writing that, do you find that kind of process to be part of your process of screenwriting? Yeah. I mean, I am... I go... I do what, what Newman does when he's researching a character. You know, I go where that character would live. I find someone there who does what my character does, who does that job. And if, if I can get close enough to that person to even do their job with them, to, to see what the fabric of life is and to hang out where they hang out and to, if it's a fisherman in the Basque country, to help them bring the catch in and to get to know a crew and to live in, with them instead of in some hotel. And I've, oh, that's what I've done. And what Zinnemann did fit so well into that, even though he never knew that, because he was not an actor's director, per se. He was a, uh, a documentarian, basically. What about Paul Newman and the way he directs? Um, does he use that same yeah. person, personal, yeah. uh, I guess, quality? 
How does he achieve that when he's directing? I know you, did you write a book? You wrote a book on Paul Newman's directing, yeah. so I, obviously I refer people to that book. Well, you want to read it. I'm definitely going to read it. I have a lot of research to do after meeting you. Um, but uh, I, I suppose that I will read it. But as an actor, do you think, um, I find that a lot of actors are really good directors, and a lot of actors are, have a knack for writing. Yeah. And maybe that's why you started out as an actor and then became a screenwriter because um, it puts you in, into that same kind of personal um, place where you can write from. And yeah. sometimes, though, if you write about something that you didn't experience, that seems like the only way you would be able to write about it is to somehow experience it no, in some way. No, because the imagination is the, the creative thing. I see. And if you, can, uh, if you have lived something similar and you do deep research on a Chekhovian character, if you, if you know exactly what the circumstances were economically in terms of how a house was heated, uh, what you put on your feet to cross a cold floor, and all, those, all the things that made life, you would be sensitive enough through the training that you had, you had done in contemporary works to let your imagination take you to to where you had to be. That's something that in acting school that we would do too, is we would do these sense memory exercises like what you were talking about. And then after a while, the um, professor would have us um, do one where we just made it up, where you, you, know, you describe the situation that you're in, but now you were describing one that was completely fabricated and That's you right. would find that same place. Yeah. find the same emotional level or whatever you uh, was pertinent to that situation. And that's probably true about writing, I would think, also, uh, is that you can put yourself in a place using your imagination once you have um, already tapped into your own person. That's right. Um, that's really interesting. So when you write a script, and you've written some of the great scripts, um, do you think about structure at all? How do you go about it? Do you make an outline? Do you, what that's, do you generally do? That's so bewildering. I've, I've done some where I've written a 95-page treatment. But it's not... It's like writing a short story. I, I'm very careful about my prose. I write as richly as I can. And uh, for me, and I do the same thing when I'm writing descriptions... The actors love it. The directors, you know, it's treading on their territory, they think. But it doesn't stop me because I write the movie I see and, uh, or the life I see or the scene I see. And so many of them come out of my own memory. You know, the dreams and summer wishes that lifted right out of my nightmares and the scenes in, in Rebel... Uh, the, the father and the apron and the dropped tray, uh, it, if they were alive, I could get that apron and show it as the original for that. And, uh, and war scenes, scenes right out of the war, seen in Teresa, night patrol scene. Uh, so that's, or, or my fears, my dread of heights, the escalator, nightmare, and summer wishes were. So 
so I'm there, whatever I feel fully. The, tort, the course that I sort of made up and that I teach is called the personal connection. Mm -hmm. And the only purpose of it is to get people to be sensitive to themselves and to the world out there, to the world of their characters, and to be willing to go as deeply as they can into both of them. Mm -hmm. Because they're, you're a character. You are a character. And conversely, I don't like to call them characters. I like to call them my people. And I encourage them to call them their people. Not protagonist, antagonist, but, you know, the my favorite person or my least favorite person. I haven't carried it that far, but I'd like to. And until they're palpable and real and you can dream about them and visualize them. And when I was writing John Brown's body, I would talk to Lincoln every morning. Mm -hmm. I'd go to the studio. I'd get briefed on the te technicalities of whatever the battle was. And then I'd just sit in my office and I'd sort of go into the alpha state. And then I'd conjure Lincoln. And I would be sitting as close to him as I am to you. And we would be looking into each other's eyes. Those gray, melting, heartbreaking eyes. And that skin that was blue. And, and I would just, we'd just look at each other for a long time. And then there'd be a little glimmer of something. And I'd know, okay, now I have to write. And then I'd go start writing.